2: So when we last left... I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm not going to read your part. Are you ready to get down on this true fun odyssey?
3: I'm ready for true fun. Yes. I'm absolutely ready. Of course I'm ready for (laughs) true fun. It ain't true crime, baby. It's true fun. (laughs) Still disturbing, still messy in some ways, but hey, it's true fun. It's fun. (laughs) Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks.
2: And I'm Carolina Hidalgo.
3: And we are continuing with our journey on The Cramps. So when we last left The Cramps... Is it okay if I do yeah, yes, that you camp? can do
2: it. <laughs> you, yes, it's your line.
3: So when we last left The Cramps, they had just utterly blown the chance to play regular gigs at CBGB, which was heartbreaking to the band because CBs had been the whole reason why Ivy and Lux had moved to New York in the first place. But even though Hilly Crystal, owner of CBGBs, didn't see the potential of The Cramps at the time... Peter Crowley, the manager of Max's Kansas City, decided to give the Cramps a chance based purely on the band's energy.
2: Yeah, I mean, Peter Crowley, he thought they were terrible, remember? (laughs) They were magically terrible, though, so he booked the Cramps to open for suicide, Everyone thought Peter was crazy to do that. <laughs> They're like, book the cramps, book suicide.
3: <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you're gonna go for it's like, okay, there's this band that's terrible, but I love them. Who do I put them with? This other band that's terrible, but I also love.
2: It's perfect. It's a, I
3: mean, he's a, he's a visionary. He saw something in these bands that nobody else
1: saw.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were a perfect fit together because, like you said, like they were both kind of con- considered outsider music. Yeah. So, but. Of course, from different ends of the spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? They got along well enough with suicide, even though they didn't really speak to each other very much, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people were scared of suicide at the time.
3: Yeah, Alan Vega was a terrifying man. You didn't know if he was going to bite your fucking neck out.
2: But, yes, of course. Back then, he they were, like, very mysterious. But, like, now we all know, like, they are, like, the nicest guys in the world. I like them so much. They're it's so nice. It's the way it goes. Yeah. Well, the first gig with Suicide was on November 21st, 1976. And this was only their second time on stage. Fuck. <laughs> so So yeah, of course they got heckled. I mean, especially with, like for the next 8 shows that they did with Suicide, they got heckled a little bit. Like you could hear it in some of the early tape recordings, someone be like, "Get a job." <laughs> you know, real original stuff. Yeah. But, you know, but that's the thing is
3: that that is the that is something that the cramps will deal with for the rest of their career until they really establish themselves. Where at first, like when people first see them, they're like, I fucking hate this. And then by the end of the show, they say, I fucking love this. I mean, suicide never got that. If people didn't immediately love them, they kept hating them throughout. (laughs) But the cramps, the cramps were good at winning people over. Yeah. Now, even though the Cramps were indeed pretty rough on those first few gigs, save for Ivy, who Ivy actually already knew what she was doing. She'd been playing guitar forever. The Cramps used these gigs at Max's to debut even more originals. For example, these are the gigs where the Cramps debuted the simplistic one-two stomper, I'm Cramped, where Brian Gregory used his uneasy guitar work to actually capture the feeling of being queasy and... Cramped. cramped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm cramped. <laughs> It's hot in this room We've both taken off our shirts Carolina's in a bra I've got no shirt on at all We're cosplaying as the Cramps
2: It's the Cramps
3: <laughs> And that song's fucking sick I mean like sick sick Like it makes you feel sick It makes you <laughs> feel fucking queasy And when the Cramps were making flyers For all these gigs at Max's They started using a one word term That they felt encapsulated their sound Or at the very least Caught the eye of passersby They began to bill themselves As psychobelly even though the Cramps didn't actually coin the term themselves. And even then, they didn't, really didn't believe in the term all that much. It was a marketing tool. As far as we know, though, the word was first used the year before in a novelty song Johnny Cash sang about a long-game thief building a hot rod out of parts stolen from the GM factory called One Piece at a Time.
4: I got it one piece at a time And it didn't cost me a dime You'll know it's me when I come through your town Ride around in style. I'm gonna drive everybody wild, cause I'll have the only one there is around. Uh yeah, Red Rider, this is the cotton mouth in the Psycho Billy Cadillac, come on. Oh, uh, this is the cotton mouth and negatory on the cost of this machine there, Red Rider. You might say I went right up to the factory and picked it up, it's cheaper that way. What model is it? Well, it's a 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, automobile. It's a 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66.
3: I think it's great about that is that it implies that the Cramps listen to every new Johnny Cash record that there was. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, it's not like they just listen to the Sun Records sub and be like, yeah, he sucks now. like, No, they listen to every single new thing that Johnny Cash put out. But even though the Cramps didn't come up with the term psychobilly, it still evoked what the Cramps were going for in a single word. The term survived for a long time afterward too, notably being used by my man Reverend Horton Heat in his 1990 track Psychobilly Freakout. It's
4: a
2: Wow, all that from a reverend. <laughs> that's, Im- that's impressive. Now,
3: now, I know the rev. Probably isn't as big of a deal outside of my home state as he was to all of us Texans growing up, and probably not as big of a deal. And if you played the PC game uh, Redneck Rampage in the fucking '90s, then you heard a lot of Reverend Horton Heat.
2: You played that game? Hell
3: yeah, Redneck Rampage. It was a terrible game, but it was very funny.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds <laughs> offensive. No, no, no. It was just about
3: rednecks shooting aliens. It had, it had a great had a great soundtrack. It had Reverend Horton Heat. Had Mojo Nixon. Had all these succubelli guys. It was <laughs> really good.
2: <sighs> I just I want to check out this subtext later though. Later <laughs> (laughs)
3: No, it's just rednecks killing aliens. That's all it is. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But I wasn't too surprised to find out that it was actually the cramps playing in Dallas in the late 70s, early 80s that made a young Jim Heath realize he could fuse the punk he loved with the rockabilly he loved. And the result was the best psychobilly guitarist who ever lived. played two fucking love the rev. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say you played two
2: songs right up top.
3: I love the rev. I mean, because that's what the cramps led to. Like the cramps led uh, to guys like Reverend Horton Heat and legendary Shack Shakers and Mojo Nixon. Like this whole scene, you know that uh, you know is still. I wouldn't say it's thriving today. It had definitely had its peak in the early nineties. You know Reverend Horton Heat. He was on Sub Pop. You know four his first four albums are fucking immaculate they're fucking great but you know the cramps they definitely had uh, an impact afterwards.
2: oh yeah absolutely i remember listening to the living end when i was in middle school and writing an email (laughs) to the lead singer who never wrote me back i was like hi this girl from mexico wants to know if you have a girlfriend (laughs) anyway it didn't work out
3: So on April 1st, and thank God it didn't. Yeah, thank, thank, God, did, thank God. Thank God it didn't. Yeah. They unit up with me instead of the fucking <laughs> lead singer of the living end. Yeah. <laughs> so on April 1st, 1977, the Cramps opened for the Ramones, who, if you'll remember, once made Cramps guitarist Brian Gregory throw up because he was so unprepared for how overwhelming those early Ramones shows were.
2: Yeah, and the cool thing is that the Ramones saw the Cramps perform one night and invited, an, invited them on their shows. Nice. So it was like... A bigger awesome thing to (laughs) to happen to them. So they got to play six or seven more shows thanks to the Ramones. And Ivy and Lux really credit the Ramones for giving them their start. You know, they're like, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have been able to uh, have a lot of people see us. And then eventually would lead for us to be able to do our own shows and book our own shows. And then they became really good friends with Johnny and Joey Ramone for yeah. decades. And even later, when Johnny and Joey would come over to go see their shows and stuff, like they were like, okay, we know you guys hate each other right now. <laughs> so they had them in separate rooms and had to...
3: <laughs> go hang out with Joey for a little yeah. bit. And it was like, okay, we got to go hang a out with costume Johnny. costume
2: change <laughs> and then run over to the other one.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, and that happened a lot with the Cramps. You know, bands would see them, especially in these early days. Like, bands would go out and see them and they... They said we want to play a show with those guys like they're fucking great put them on the next bill
2: i know they were slowly getting a little bit more popular and even one review said it's too bad too because the cramps have always had their best nights when the audience hated them <laughs> <laughs> but that was gonna end
3: it was now it really didn't take the cramps long to earn enough stripes to play cbgb because after all they only biffed the audition because they made the amateur mistake of putting new strings on their guitars right before a show your, your, it's just, for those of you who don't play guitar, it just your guitar strings go out of tune immediately, and they will do it over and over and over again. It's not going to sound good. So less than a year after their first audition, the Cramps headlined a three-day weekend showcase at Seabees made up of mostly Canadian punk bands. Ooh. Canada actually doesn't get enough credit for having a sick fucking punk scene uh, in the late 70s after the Ramones went up and played there. And this ended up forming a strong, lasting bond between the Cramps and Canadian bands like the Diodes, who just might have written the perfect mood song for 2020 in 1979. What is it? Tired of Waking Up Tired.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm tired of waking
4: up tired. Waking up tired.
3: Yeah, just make a playlist that's just tired of waking up tired and I can't be happy today by The Damned and just loop those (laughs) two over and over and over. Oh, real
2: fun. (laughs) Real good time.
3: But, I mean, speaking of The Damned, I mean, that was the Diodes doing fucking History of the World Part 1 in 1979. Yeah, that's a good point. they were doing that shit before The Damned were doing it. Like, the the Canadians were on to something, you know? I mean, there were other bands, too. They were like the Ugly, you know, who was pretty much the Trailer Park Boys if the Trailer Park Boys were in a fucking <laughs> punk band. Like,
2: <laughs> oh, I know about the Ugly. <laughs>
3: They've got a whole story all uh, uh, all themselves. Unfortunately, though, or perhaps fortunately from the point of view of a record collector, this string of shows was the last that the Cramps would play with Miriam Lena, who left for pretty much the same reasons most members left the Cramps.
2: Well, she wasn't in a good place at the time. You know, I mean, her good friend Peter Lochner from, uh, uh he was in Pier Ubu, like, mm. right in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had just died of a drug overdose, like, the week before. Ugh. And she was 21. She was, like, growing up. She's trying to figure out, like, what she wanted to do with her life, getting to different kinds of music, different circles of friends. And she just had to do more. And, like, the the cramps wasn't it.
3: Well, I mean, just the cramps are just, it's just too much. Yeah. It's a lot to it's, be in the cramps. It's
2: a lot of studying. It's a lot. It's very single- Focused. Yeah. Uh, it's like, this is what we do. No, we're not doing anything else. This is exactly, we're, we're just, you know, straight on target, that kind of thing. And a few days after the, her last gig with the cramps, actually, it was the great blackout of 1977.
3: <laughs> (laughs) It was a bad night here in New York City.
2: Yes. What happened was like there was like a lightning like hit somewhere upstate and then eventually just wiped out the whole area with like like there's no electricity at all. It was all dark. And she's just standing there is like, where's my (laughs) bed? I can't see my bed. Time to move on.
3: Well, unlike a lot of early punks who left bands and just sort of blended back into normal society, which there's nothing wrong with that. But Miriam Lena instead stayed in the music world and co-founded the indispensable weirdo label Norton Records, which is still going strong today.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of like went from one thing to another. Like she met her future husband, Billy Miller, at a record fair. It's very sweet. And then they played in a band called the Xanties, And then they started putting together fanzines like kicks. And so she would like write about Hassel Atkins, And then all the readers would be like, what does he sound like? And she's like, crap. Okay. So <laughs> they went all the yeah, way. You can't just
3: link to his fucking Spotify profile like you can no. today. It's like, what does he sound like? Like, oh, and do you want to come over? <laughs> <I
2: know>. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what? They, they actually tracked him down in West Virginia. And they're like, okay, uh, we want to make an album of your songs. You're so good. And Hassel was probably like, are, are you a record label? And they're like yes <laughs> yes that's right that's exactly what we are and so they accidentally founded Norton Records and that was like what 1986 mm-hmm. and Hassel Atkins came out with his album Out to Hunch I love that
4: <laughs> love out all his hunch. album titles
2: like the one he had in the 90s like uh, What the Hell Was I Thinking is probably the best title <laughs> for an album <laughs> but one of the most interesting songs out there I think was no more hot dogs.
3: Great.
4: <laughs> 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 well, I'm going to put you in on my wall just like I told you. You can't talk no more, and can't eat no more. Eat no more hot hot dogs. I'm gonna put your head, I put it on my wall. Now, baby, don't you be be afraid, cause you don't wanna eat. Eat none to death, I'm gonna put your head on my wall, and then you can't eat no more hot dogs. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
3: It's a confusing song.
2: It's yeah, there's a lot of elements to.
3: <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of layers. layers yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the most yeah, the topmost layer being I'm going to kill you so you can't eat hot dogs no more.
2: And and mount your head on a wall? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I mean, Norton Records, uh, I mean, they didn't just release Hassle Atkins. Like, they're they're still going. They're based out of Red Hook, Brooklyn. They've got a gigantic catalog. If you like the weirdo stuff that we've been playing uh, over the last couple of episodes and even some of the other weirdo stuff that we played at the very beginning of the series, like, Norton Records is the place to go. they got such a huge catalog of great vinyl reissues. But besides all that, Norton also reissued a proto-punk album in 1998 that was, before then impossibly hard to find outside of the pacific northwest even though kurt cobain who was from the pacific northwest was telling everyone how great this band was but it was miriam lena and norton records who ensured that everyone could finally hear the sonics Bring it all full circle. The Cramps themselves recorded a song by the Sonics on the Cramps' first album, singing Strychnine with the sort of energy that you'd expect from a protagonist who don't like water, who don't like wine, but instead likes the taste of pure Strychnine. I hear a lot of Iggy Pop and Lux's performance on that one.
2: Mm. I'm just convinced that Strychnine is good. (laughs) I mean, he's very persuasive.
3: (laughs) So after Miriam left the Cramps, the band was introduced to a drummer named Nicholas Stefanoff, but he would soon be known as Nick Knox, which I found ridiculous at first until I realized... It's pretty much the same name as Marcus Parks, so I can't say shit.
2: (laughs) Your name's not (laughs) ridiculous. It's a ridiculous name.
3: I know it's a ridiculous name.
2: No, your name (laughs) is I've always known it's a
3: ridiculous name. I like
2: it. Thank you. I like it very much. (laughs) So, yeah, Nick Knox, he was from Ohio, too, actually. Right outside of Cleveland. Jesus, another one. I know. Well, I mean, they all had a lot of mutual friends that moved uh, from Ohio to New York, of like course. their mutual friend Bradley Field from uh, Tina's Jesus and the Jerks. Oh, yeah. He recommended Nick, who used to be a drummer for the Electric Eels.
3: Right, it was a Cleveland proto punk band.
2: Yeah, exactly. So when Lux and Ivy met Nick at a party, they liked him because out of all the guys that he came in with from Ohio, <laughs> he was the only one who bothered to talk to Ivy.
3: Ah. Which
2: is very important
3: to it's a big deal, yeah. Yeah.
2: So Lux, Ivy, and Brian took Nick out to a coffee shop to like feel each other out. And while they were talking, Nick ordered and ate two gigantic banana splits. <laughs> I don't know if he did that within a span of a half hour. <laughs> But somehow, that pissed Brian off Ugh. so much.
3: Well, Brian was a very sensitive guy.
2: Well, maybe Nick didn't want to share. <laughs> Did you ever think of that?
3: <laughs> it's his money and do what he wants with it. If he wants two banana splits, he can buy two banana splits, He whole fucking thing.
2: <laughs> so the band actually rejected him out of like... I don't know, respect for Brian, I guess. He's like, we all kind of need to be in on this.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that that banana split thing. It just rubbed me the wrong way. I don't want to work with him.
2: Okay, (laughs) okay. That's fine, Brian. So, But the thing is that Nick was adamant about joining this because he's like, I moved from Ohio, for God's sakes. (laughs) So he checked Lux down at Seabee's one night, and he went up to Lux, and he's like, I demand an audition. And Lux looked at him and said... Sure, yeah, why not? <laughs> Which was good because if Lux would have said no, Nick planned on punching him in the face. <laughs> That's the thing. Nick was crazy, mm-hmm. but they like crazy. Plus, he was loyal and could actually play the drums really, really well.
3: He could. He was tight. Like, he yeah. was the one that brought the tightness that the cramps needed. Because uh, Miriam Lena was, I mean, she was good and everything, but she was very loose. And the cramps, like, if they wanted to really go for that rockabilly style, they had to be fucking tight but loose at the same time that's the, like that's that's the so you
2: want me to do what it's a di- <laughs> well
3: tight it's tight looseness it's like playing a little bit ahead you know or playing a little bit behind you know it's it's still being tight but getting the groove in there you know come on
2: i can almost see it <laughs> almost <laughs>
3: well, after we're done i'll pull up my fucking drumsticks and i'll show you what i mean
2: okay cool <laughs> <laughs>
3: So with Nick and the band, the Cramps were ready to finally record an album, and the person who was all set to record them was, surprisingly, Alex Chilton, who had scored a number one hit ten years earlier at the age of 16 with The Letter.
4: Give me a ticket for an aeroplane Ain't got time to take a fast train Lonely days are gone. I'm going home, oh, my baby I don't care how much money I gotta spend Got to get back to my baby again The only days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby used to rope me a little When she wrote me a letter Said she couldn't live without me no more Listen, mister, can't you see I got to get back to my baby once more Anyway, yeah, a ticket for an
3: airplane. Great song. Yeah. Classic of the oh, era. so good. Yeah, 16 with the uh, Box Tops. That was his band at the time, Memphis Boys. But by the time Alex Chilton was ready to work with the Cramps, he'd spent the first half of the 70s playing in a legendary band called Big Star. But
2: it's it's I'm, good.
3: I'm I'm finally ready to say it. I think Big Star's overrated.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I actually agree with you.
3: Um, I'm ready to say it. I mean, I know that's probably going to get my fucking college radio card taken right away. <laughs> and I know I'm never going to be allowed to be a music fucking journalist ever. because um, <laughs> I say big star, but I think they're there's it's, they've got a few great songs, like really great songs. And maybe I just haven't spent the requisite amount of time that it takes oh, to you fucking get, get I it. <laughs> it. just don't get it. <laughs> I have not spent 3 hours sitting down with the, their fucking albums to finally quote unquote get it or quote unquote convince myself that it's groundbreaking. <laughs> but but it's it's good, you know? It's just good cuz I mean they do have great fucking songs. Ballad of El Gudos. Fucking great. And and. And this one right here, September Girls. This song's fucking fantastic.
2: Yeah, I mean, I lo- I love the box tops, but you're right. Uh, Big Star is more like, you know, w- the song that they play in in, mem- in memoriam.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. I, I mean, it, it's it's very catchy, and you know what would the fucking musical landscape of the 1970s be i mean a little brighter if big star would have gotten big hits yeah i mean they got fucked over again and again you know they just it just didn't work out for them but you know to i know a lot of people just look at big Star as like they're this holy grail of 70s rock and i don't know i don't see it i guess i'm just i don't know i guess my my tastes are just different go listen to brian eno
2: (laughs) (laughs) I get it, I get Here it. Here
3: Come Warm Justice is such a better album. But it, <laughs> you
2: can like whatever you like.
3: Of course. No, you can like whatever you like. Just stop telling me what to like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Except when I tell you to like Brian Eno. What? Like- <laughs> And therein (laughs) lies the
2: contradiction. (laughs) Okay, Alex Chilton, right? Alex Chilton. He was living in New York City at that time. He was actually working on his solo stuff, and he heard heard of the cramps. He heard that they were good, but he's like, I hate that name. Yeah, fuck that. So he didn't pay any attention to them until one night at CBGB's. Alex was just there drinking at the bar, which he did every night.
3: Yeah, Alex Chilton had problems.
2: Yes. And he just saw this band getting up to play on stage. So he's like, "Oh, it's the Cramps." So he just turned his back to them and just kept drinking at the bar with talking to the bartender who gave him lots of free drinks.
3: He's Alex Chilton.
2: This <laughs> Alex Chilton, of course. Yeah. But as he kept hearing the songs while the Cramps were playing, he couldn't help but like move closer and closer to like right where he was right at the stage. And by the time they played a cover of Roy Orbison's Domino, he just couldn't ignore them anymore. He was like, no, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> this is awesome. So a couple months later, he like ran into them at a mutual friend's house where he was drinking <laughs> again. Again. And the cramps were rehearsing in that basement. So he ran into them and he said, hey, we got to work together. Let me get your number before this buzz wears off. Because <laughs> you guys are so good. So obviously the Cramps jumped at the chance, especially now that they have a drummer.
3: Yeah. Finally. They've got a solid, because before then they'd recorded a couple of demos uh, with Miriam Lena, but you know, it just, it didn't have the, uh, it didn't have the tightness that they needed.
2: Right. So they went with Alex to Memphis, Tennessee to record those demos. I mean, it was like, it was like the birth of rock and roll there, you know, like that's where they wanted to play. Like this was so cool.
3: It's great. I mean, especially considering how, what, like three or four years earlier, Ivy and Lux were fucking broke down three miles outside of town because they were going to fucking Pilfer Sun Records. Yeah, and look at them now. Yeah, and look at them now. Like they're recording in Memphis with Alex Chilton.
2: Yeah, they recorded at Ardent Studios, and it was there while they were working with Alex that they realized what a fucking lunatic Alex was. (laughs) Because if I compare, I'm going to paraphrase a quote from Lux. Regardless of what you've heard about him, Alex Chilton is completely out of his mind. (laughs) Because apparently, according to Lux, he had had sex with pretty much every woman in the whole state of Tennessee. (laughs) So that means a lot of confrontations with boyfriends armed with guns. Oh, God. So it's kind of like one of those things where he had to keep running out of really uncomfortable situations all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Alex would always get trashed. That's the thing. He, that was during his really crazy drinking and drug haze. Like, he'd fall asleep on the console and stuff, and, like, they would have to shake him awake so they could keep recording, and he'd just be like, oh, I, I don't know. I'm over right now. Like, he was always having trouble. He was living at his mom's house. Yeah. It was a little rough. It was a r- very rough
3: time for Alex Sheldon. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he hadn't quite got to the point where, you know, he's recording, like, experimental albums with Alan Vega you know just yeah like he's at a fucking low point here
2: yeah but even though he was sloppy the cramps liked him because he was honest you yeah. know and they were able to work like creatively like coming up with vocal parts or like guitar riffs or a- a- anything they wanted on their songs while they were in the studio as opposed to some of the demos they did where the engineer would be like okay I'm pressing record now go
0: yeah
3: Now, since the Cramps were in Memphis, and since Alex Chilton was such a Memphis institution, I mean, this guy was a local hero from the time he was 16, the band was introduced to Jim Dickinson, who was a musician looking for a backing band to record a track at Sam Phillips Studios, which was a dream come true for the Cramps.
2: Yes. I mean, because Jim Dickinson comes up and he's like, can you record this song, the red headed woman? Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, sure. And he's like. At Phillips Studios And they're like Yes We're gonna go Yes Because remember We talked about Sam Phillips uh, He owned Sun Records And recorded Elvis Presley Johnny Cash Jerry Lee Lewis Everyone So they're obviously Very big fans yeah. So they record for Jim At Phillips Studios And they're like This is so cool I can't believe this But they really got to See the place so well Because they lo- got Locked in the studio <laughs> Overnight <laughs> So they, they really got You know Some some nice time In that yeah." Studio.
3: Yeah, 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 got some nice time, got some nice sleeping time in In the fucking, you know, in the <laughs> recording booth Yeah, they got a whole bunch of shit going on
2: It's <laughs> so, they actually met Sam Phillips That's awesome Yeah, he was coming by uh, He was like cutting down some vines with his chainsaw He was like doing a little maintenance And so Lux and Ivy we were like, oh my god Oh god, it's so great to meet you in person you're, you're doing a little gardening? That's cool Okay, anyway, we have every EP single from Sun Records And Sam just looks at them and says you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was it. That was it.
3: You're lucky. That's such a great thing to say. Well, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like,
2: it's like it's like the time when I met um, Willie Nelson once. Yeah. Remember? I, like,
3: remember I, I remember when you met Willie, yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I shook his hand, and all I could say was, big fan. <laughs> I didn't say, hi, Willie. I'm Carolina. I'm a big fan. I really appreciate your work. I, I think you're really cool. No, it was big fan.
3: <sighs> <laughs> yeah, no, you told me afterwards, was, His hands are so soft.
2: They're so soft.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So after their Memphis adventure, the Cramps returned to CBGB to find that the venue was somewhat in a state of flux when it came to the types of bands who were then taking the stage. So when we look back at the original scene now, it feels like it lasted throughout the 70s. But in reality, the first wave of bands like the Ramones, Blondie, Patti Smith, Television, Talking Heads, all those bands... They outgrew the venue in about a year, and in some cases, less. But that's not to say that the scene just ended or became stagnant. Instead, bands who were inspired by that first wave, cramps included, were starting to get more stage time, and Seabees became a home to groups like the Fleshtones, the Feelys, and the criminally forgotten Mumps.
4: Elbows brush, secrets couple in the darkness. Cheeks will blush my circles in the dark Nestling close bottle sweat Lands and unheld
2: Oh, it sounds like a musical,
3: <laughs> yeah, like a cool rock musical. Very much a cool rock musical. Yeah, I mean the the Mumps are just one of those bands that you know they they fell to the wayside. And the lead singer of the Mumps, Lance Loud, he was actually in the very first reality television show ever. He was in American Family, and he actually mm-hmm. became a gay rights icon because he came out on television in like in the early ni- in the mid nineteen seventies, I think. Like he was a big icon, uh, but the Mumps they sort of fell into oblivion because despite having critically acclaimed singles like you know that one I like to be clean Just Look Don't Touch was also fucking great they never got a major label record deal and it was looking like a strong possibility back in the late 70s that the Cramps we're gonna be in the same boat
2: no get off the boat (laughs) (laughs) get off the boat come back ashore (laughs) (laughs) well it's because alex chilton was working with terry orc on his orcs record label you know for his own solo stuff Mm. so he figured okay why don't we get the cramps on orc records too But it really sucked because Orc Records could not actually offer them a deal because financially they weren't doing very well. Like a lot of their EPs weren't selling well, including Alex Chilton's. Yeah. So they're just like, no, man, we can't do it. I mean, that was bad news to them. But at least they got to mix a lot of their songs with Alex in London. So they had something, just not a record deal.
3: Yeah, they didn't have a record deal. Yeah. I mean, Orc Records, there's a lot of really cool shit on there, but... um he released, Terry Orc released so many singles yes. and so many EPs and none of them hit. No. You know, and the one band that he had, because he was also the manager of television, but television signed to Elektra. Like,
2: well, like, he did their first demo. Yeah, he
3: did. Yeah. Little Johnny Jewel. Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah. But, but Terry Orc just, it just wasn't happening, you know, and unfortunately the cramps were kind of caught in the middle of that. And with no labels willing or able to take a chance on the Cramps, they, like the Misfits, took the DIY road instead and started their own label, calling it simply Vengeance.
2: Obvious. (laughs) I like it.
3: It's great. But instead of releasing an original, the Cramps chose to release their own demented take on Surfing Bird, just six months after the Ramones released their more straightforward take on Rocket to Russia.
2: Well, the Ramones asked, and they said, yeah. Cool.
4: <laughs> oh, well, everybody's heard about the bird. <laughs>
3: Now, I know we promised to treat us on Surf and Bird, and it is coming. Yes. But we figured instead of spending, I don't know, a third of this episode talking about Surf and Bird... It's
2: hot in here. (laughs) We
3: don't have time for it. We don't. We're going to devote a whole mini so to the history of the song, which is a a fascinating little history. It tells you a lot about surf music and about pop music at the time. And that's going to come after the Cramps series is done. Now, besides this being the Cramps' first release this single was also important because it featured the first use of the cramps logo which the band would put on every single release until their last album in
2: 2003 yeah they put it together like themselves like it's uh, from the the crypt of terror comics that lux used to read which is really tales from the crypt yeah all from that ec comics
3: all that ec comic shit yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the drip down logo, you know, or yeah. everything. Yeah, it's dripping down. Is it blood? I don't know. Ooh, Quite it's possibly. Slime,
2: maybe. <laughs> it's spooky.
3: It's very spooky. So after releasing their single, the Cramps realized that if they really wanted to make it, they'd have to play outside of New York City. So the band packed into a car and drove all the way to Ivy's home state of California to play a few gigs in LA and San Francisco.
2: Yeah, they opened for the Runaways, actually. The Runaways were like really hot at that time
3: it was a huge
2: yes and they they played there at the whiskey go-go for three nights which went fine enough but they they did get heckled a little bit but you know the the audience did get into it at the end yeah even the ones that boot yeah which is good every the
3: cramps always win people over
2: yeah and the only complaint i guess lux had was like oh the staff at the whiskey go-go were like really like strict on things they're like oh you're two minutes late (laughs) (laughs) and lux is like this is not a job <laughs> we're a rock band Hell we should yeah. be two minutes late
3: we could be five minutes late man Ooh,
2: that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> and at the show like he made sure to be an asshole about it a little bit because mm-hmm. he liked to do that he liked to antagonize a little bit like walking on the catwalk when you're not allowed to or yeah. breaking the glass the fire extinguisher bringing out the fire extinguisher and trying nope it it, it didn't work. <laughs> but throwing the fire extinguisher and continuing singing the song. <laughs> he did shit like that all the time. Like, one time he chewed on a big piece of glass and spat it out, like, towards the audience <laughs> during the live show. Didn't get hurt yeah. at all. No. Or he, it, like, that was the thing. Like, he, he had this adrenaline rush going. Like, he would rarely get hurt except for one time he tried a swan dive uh, off the of CBGB stage, and he broke his nose yeah. because apparently the audience... uh. Didn't want to catch his fall. <laughs> but Lux, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. It's all about the performance. And then they, they, they made their way to San Francisco where they actually had a better crowd because this was a time when San Francisco, like the whole scene there, was emerging into like this punk haven that we're actually going to talk about real soon in the next series.
3: Very soon. Yes. The San Francisco scene... But we're we're, we're going to get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the San Francisco scene, it's like, it's a little cooler than the LA scene. But we'll get into Is that. It, yeah. <laughs> we're going to find out. <laughs> we're going to find out on the next series. Now, based off those gigs and their single, the Cramps were finally starting to get positive press. But it was at this point that the Cramps took a little detour from conventional touring to play one of the most infamous gigs of the early punk era. In the summer of 1979, the Cramps played a free show for the patients of the Napa State Mental Hospital. And the great thing about this gig is that the entire show was filmed, and it can now be seen in its entirety on YouTube. Let's hear a little bit from it.
4: We're at Crams, and we're from New York City. And we drove 3,000 miles to play for you people. And somebody told me you people are crazy, but I'm not so sure about that. You seem to be all right with the way I walk, the way I ride, it's just the way I smile, to the baby, and I go to the bar, the way I love it's just the way I live, oh, and leave a woman, leave me
3: It's easily one of the most fascinating concert films of all time.
2: It's so much fun. So what happened was that Lux and Ivy, they were in San Francisco, and they actually caught wind that the Screamers, they were a L.A. punk band there, they actually played at Ca- Camarillo State Mental Hospital just a few months before.
3: And how did that show go?
2: It went okay. Not so great. <laughs> Apparently people were very upset because the Screamers music was, you know, a little more serious. Yeah. A little more intense. Yeah,
3: it's much more intense. It made
2: the patients even more depressed. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a review of the show that said it was split. So some of them liked it, <laughs> at least. But the cramps got to play. At a mental institution. Yeah, well, the cramps are a much,
3: they're a good time. Yeah. You know, exactly. like, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's happy music. I think it's happy music, at least. But it's the cramps, it's a good, at the very least, the cramp show is a fucking great time.
2: So it was June 13th, 1978. And the cramps and the mutants played. Actually, the mutants said it was their idea to play at a mental institution. And the, they booked it. And the cramps just kind of joined in at the last minute. <laughs> so this guy, Bart Swain, he was like the new activities director guy there. And he was super nervous about the whole thing. He was like, what do you mean you're bringing cameras? Are you filming this? Oh, God. Oh, God. I just got hired at this job. I got to get fired. Oh, geez. So he was a little bit nervous about the whole thing. But you know what? It actually turned out pretty good. I mean, the mutants said, like, interacting with the audience was, was kind of like going to Mars.
3: Yeah. I mean... Crazy. Yeah, because there was no barrier between the patients and the bands like they were right. I mean, there was like a couple like maybe three steps up to the quote unquote stage where the guys where the bands were playing and the mental patients would just walk up and start talking to the band in the middle of playing. Like, I mean, they were mental patients.
2: Yeah. But I mean, but they, they were, were also
3: dancing their asses off.
2: They were having a great time, and that's the thing. Like, I feel like Lux and Ivy, and like the whole band. I feel like the cramps, like, kind of felt like a little bit of a, a, a bit of a kinship. You know, like you guys are cool. We're cool, man. Like, you know, middle-aged women jumping up and down, holding their handbags <laughs> while they're moving to the music. Lots of running on stage. You know, Lux, like, you know, puts down his microphone to run around a little bit, and then a patient grabs the mic and starts yelling.
3: Ah. <laughs> it's cool. It's it's. it's punk rock it's cool yeah it's punk rock there's an old man with a cowboy hat that's just dancing the entire time some of the patients are dancing with each other Uh, and the thing is is that the cramps like They look like they could be patients. Like they just—we don't know. (laughs) You don't know, especially Brian Gregory. Like Brian Gregory had insane hair at this time. He looked cool as shit. Like
2: like Pete White from The Venture Brothers. Yeah, kind of like the same kind of haircut.
3: It's the exact same haircut. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) 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 it's the exact same haircut. That's what he looked like. Uh, But yeah, they they sort of they blended in really well, and they just and they saw the patients. It's just like, oh, you're people. We're here to do a show for you. Yeah, and let's all have a good fucking time.
2: Which is so cool i mean one guy came up to ivy and said you know i'm in heaven because you know since i'm here i thought i was gonna miss punk music but you guys brought punk music to me and it's just like oh that's that's so endearing you know
3: it's very endearing it's a very endearing show and most of the patients they had a fantastic time but as you said A couple of patients got a little carried away, (laughs) and Lux had to spend a good chunk of the show wrestling the microphone away from a patient who decided that she was the new lead singer of The Cramps. That last part, it is Lux holding the microphone with the woman also holding the microphone. Try and he's trying to bring it. He's trying to wrestle it away from her, and then finally he gets it and just keeps singing "Human Fly." And she just runs off of the stage and then comes back very soon.
2: But it's cool. It's like it gives them a chance to like you know be their own rock star.
3: Yeah, because they do that a few times. Like they just hand the microphone to one of the patients, and the, most of the time the patients just go. Ah! And then hand it back to Lux. <laughs> That's fine. It's very th- I mean you could tell it's very cathartic for mm-hmm. them. They're having a great time. But even though most of the patients loved it, others used the distraction of the show as an opportunity. And twelve patients escaped <laughs> while the cramps played. <laughs> well,
2: I mean you can't you can't do everything right. <laughs> I guess.
3: And the band sort of freaked out. They're like, twelve patients escaped. Oh my god, this is fucking terrible.
2: Look, I can see him running down the highway. <laughs> Well, didn't I mean
3: one of the screamers actually saw one of the mem- one of the mental patients escape during his set? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, that was one of the mutants. So they, they saw one, one of the, the guys mutants. like climb a fence, and like, it's like, "Is that okay that they're uh, <laughs> running really far away?"
3: <laughs> but the the administration was like, "Nah, they'll get, they'll come back when they get hungry." Like, it's fine. We're not even gonna chase them. They do this, and then sure enough, they did. <laughs> like, all the patients came back. It's like, is it dinner time yet? Like, yeah, come on back in.
2: Yeah, it's a fun little adventure.
3: Yeah. Now, even though the Cramps, they were getting good press from both the West Coast zines and, you know, NME out in England. They were giving good press to the Cramps as well. The cramps were still no closer to finding a label. So, they released another single through Vengeance. This one, however, was an original. The first the Cramps ever committed a vinyl. Expertly using distortion to somehow mimic the sound of a monstrous fly in mental anguish, the cramps came out of the gate full speed with human fly.
4: I'm a evening fly, I, I still feel why I, I say bus, 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 I ain't this just me Cause I'm a unzipped fly And I, I don't know why, and I, I don't know why But I say Damn.
3: I rock tonight and I say I rock I say and I say I
2: I think Lux was asked this in the interview. it's like, how did you make that sound? Like, with you know, how'd you do that with the vocals? He's like, we just had shitty microphones.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are you going to
3: do? Yeah, his, his fucking vocals are... Blown out for most of the fucking song it's so yeah. yeah it's great and Brian Gregory's like I don't know how he makes That guitar sound like a fly And like a fly having a shitty day <laughs>
2: Well it's because Luck said like All my life people told me like I'm a pest I'm, I'm something ugly you know it's Somebody who, who spoils everybody's Planned out fun everyone's good time <laughs> And also it's also based On the headline from the New York Post uh, Human fly climbs tower you know when uh, George Willick he climbed the World Trade Center uh, it was like in 19 19- Seventy-seven, And then sometime later, Lux was just walking down the street in New York City early in the morning and saw that someone had jumped off the roof of the building next to his. Jesus. And they were scraping him off the sidewalk. Fuck. So he saw that. And then he remembered the headline. <laughs> and then he went upstairs and wrote this song. It's was perfect.
3: Perfect. That's, that's New York. <laughs> yes, actually. Now, after Human Fly came out, the Cramps started getting bigger and better gigs. And by February 1979, the Cramps were playing the Palladium, opening for The Clash and one of the band's heroes, Bo
0: Diddley.
2: Oh, Bo Diddley! Bo Diddley! The Originator!
4: You heard thing
3: Bo Diddley.
2: You can't... You cannot. Be very <laughs> I'm sorry. I cannot stress this enough. He's the coolest guy ever. He's great. Or was unfortunately.
3: Yeah, was. I mean, but I mean, come on. I mean, he was old man. He lived a good life. He he had a, a good innings, as <laughs> the English say. <laughs> but, like, he had a good life. He put out a lot of fucking great music, and he was doing DIY before anybody
2: was. Yeah, I told you that story yeah. on how he like had to bring in a demo to a record label that was like right around the corner from his house. So, but he didn't have any money really, except for like some wire tape recorder that he had at home so he found a record in the alley like any just random record yeah and then he put paint on it for like because he grabbed some paint from the paint store and then he let it dry and then <laughs> I can't believe he did this he w- he managed to record over that paint and yeah. then he showed it to the record label and they're like all right you're in
3: and that's how we got Bo Diddley
2: that's so cool that's
3: so fucking cool Now, while most of the cramps were focused on Bo Diddley, who was their fucking hero, Brian Gregory was more impressed by The Clash. Particularly, Gregory was taken most by the songs from The Clash's then-upcoming album, Sandinista.
4: Bankers, too, let's get up and learn those moves. When a man and the crazy cheap one says sun and one says sleep, AM and the PM, too. Turning out that boogaloo Hit you up and I guess you out. But how long can you keep it up? Give me Honda, give me Sonic, so cheap and we're falling. Hong Kong dollar, Indian city.
3: I know I got a lot of flack for saying London Calling was the best fucking clash album and a lot of people love Sandinista. And I give it. To you. It's a great fucking album as well.
2: Or you could just pick up the Essential Clash if you you know, if you wanna get a little lazy. That's did, totally fine.
3: Did you did you just recommend the greatest hits?
2: Yes I did. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> All right. So, Brian, he saw how, like, the Clash were doing, like, their, their very political music and, and how big they were. And he thought, like, oh, we should get political in our music, too. Even though he wasn't, like, super politically minded. Yeah. I mean, But he's still, like, he's like, well, I agree with Joe Strummer. So maybe we that could be, like, a new direction for the band. So he brought up this idea to Lux and Ivy, and they're just like, no. Hard no. That's not what we do in our band. We're not going to bring in politics. This is not what this is about.
3: They also couldn't. That would would be ridiculous if they did that.
2: It, It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it
3: doesn't make any sense at all.
2: So that kind of distanced Brian from the band, like, he would just always get very frustrated. You know, he'd quiet down, like, stew in his resentment and and sometimes have paranoid thoughts about, like, what other people are thinking about him, which is extremely relatable.
3: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's not extremely relatable as the heroin use. Oh,
2: yeah. (laughs) Well, that's what they said. It made the
3: paranoia much worse.
2: They said that he was a heroin addict. His girlfriend at the time said, no, he wasn't. So who knows?
3: Who knows? Now, at this point, the Cramps were still without a label. But after playing a string of well received shows in Los Angeles, the band was contacted by Miles Copeland, who had just founded IRS Records. Now, the plan was to reissue the singles the Cramps had already released and pair that with a buzzworthy high profile tour. And it just so happened that Stuart Copeland, Miles' brother, was about to head out with his band, The Police. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we always have to do it. <laughs> yeah, the first show they did was uh, May thirty first, nineteen seventy nine, in Scotland, Glasgow, Scotland. Cool. And almost everyone in the audience hated them. Of course, it's the police. No, I mean the cramps. I know it's the oh. po- it's the audience <laughs> like it that's like coming, coming out to see the hate.
3: police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the audience coming out to see the police isn't necessarily going to be into the cramps. It's like suicide opening for the cars.
2: Well, rem- yes, exactly. Yeah. It was Actually, it was just like that. Yeah. The audience, they just weren't, maybe they weren't prepared for this. I mean, imagine them seeing Lux jumping off the stage, crawling over the seats while Brian, you know, looking like Venture Brothers guy, <laughs> would play. And at the same time, he'd move his cigarette around in his mouth and then just spit it out at an audience member. <laughs> <laughs> and Ivy just playing with this like intense like sexuality, like just staring out, just yeah. and not moving an inch. Yeah, into dominatrix the
3: crowd. energy. Yeah, yeah, and they all those people are there to see.
2: Rocks it!
3: You know, it's not, it's, it doesn't fucking match.
2: No, no, but there were a few people who were mesmerized.
3: Yes, very few, very few. One of those people was a pre-Smiths Morrissey and Morrissey wrote a well-meaning, if infuriating, letter to Sounds Magazine about the Cramps police show that he saw. It read as thus. The Cramps are worth their weight in gold for making the police seem like a great big sloppy bowl of mush. The police, hardly dabbling in degrees of the unexpected, presented a farcical imitation of their rock goes to college thing. Several people clapped, But then, I suppose someone has to. The cramps were enough to restore faith in the most spiritless. They have it all, and the drummer is the most compelling in rock history. Back to the cramps, or perish. It is
2: written. Fucking (laughs) Morrison I mean, that's... (laughs) Uh, th- I have no words. Uh, yeah, I, but, mean, I mean, but that's—I mean—that's cool. It's cool that like he—he he does have good taste in music. He and, does, and he plays good music.
3: Yes, he does. No, we're both huge Smiths fans, of course. <laughs> yeah,
2: actually, <But> <laughs> <laughs> that's how I got through
3: college. Yeah, uh, and, but, the, but the funny thing is that, like. Before Morrissey was in the Smiths, before he was Morrissey, he was just some pain in the ass kid in the scene that wrote nothing but letters to music magazines. I found a website that is nothing but Morrissey's letters to sounds and MME and all these fucking things. Like that's all Morrissey was known for. And he did that for like seven years (laughs) before like the Smiths first album came out in 84. Before then, he was just like, ugh, this guy. Yeah.
2: well he was working as a clerk I think for something with like uh, tax revenue or something so like he had a, I guess instead of working that's that's what he was doing at his desk got
3: another letter from Morrissey oh <laughs> <laughs> now since the majority perception of the cramps while on tour with the police had been positive the people most of the people who saw the cramps especially in you know the music world loved them Copeland made good on his promise to reissue existing cramp singles, and did so on a compilation called Gravest Hits in 1979. So, with Gravest Hits in the stores, IRS decided to fully invest in the cramps, so the band returned to Alex Chilton in Memphis, Tennessee to lay down the tracks for their debut album, Songs the Lord Taught Us. think I understand I understand (laughs) Oh, I get it I fucking get it man garbage man hell yeah
2: yeah so they got Alex to produce again because they kind of promised him they would yeah
3: I mean their people are their word
2: yeah yeah I mean they got a record deal come on back Alex let's do this but of course it got delayed a lot because of Alex yeah well whenever he was awake and slightly hungover which is like all the time (laughs)
3: If Alex was awake He was hungover Yeah Yes (laughs) When he wasn't drunk He was hungover Yeah
2: (laughs) He would make them do the songs I lived my
3: life like that for a while Yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) He would make them do the songs Over and over again Until Lux's voice was like Too strained to do anymore They're like Alex Just accept it This is a song
0: Yeah (laughs) You know
2: He Lux even said in an interview one time And I don't know if this is true But he said it That uh, one night Alex put a gun to his head And said Sing it right
3: (laughs) What is it with these fucking wacky ass producers and guns?
2: I don't know. Well, it's Memphis. It
3: is, it is Memphis. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what do you mean it's Memphis. Fucking Phil Spector was doing that in L.A.
2: Yeah, it's L.A. <laughs> it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's,
3: it's everywhere. it's late 70s. It's it's 1980. Yeah, or 1979 when this was recorded
2: and so once they got like the mixing done which took months by the way Alex like called him up in the middle of the night. he's like hey uh, how about we mix my advance and use the money to re-record everything okay <laughs> we can fly everyone down here by tonight and I'll mix it while we record I can do this and they're like no fucking
3: way absolutely not
2: no we need to do live shows we need to move on move on alex the album is good enough (laughs) and it is
3: it is it's a fucking great album you know and when it comes to the tracks recorded during these sessions i mean the cramps they fucking double down on the horror aesthetic you know especially on songs like i was a teenage werewolf it's everything the cramps wanted to be song's mixed fucking great, you got Brian Gregory in the left ear, you got Poison Ivy in the right ear, that song's so fucking good. And the thing about the Cramps is that they looked the part, both on stage and off, unlike certain members of the Misfits, who are switching between spiked shoulder pads and New York giant sweatpants, depending on what time of day it was. In fact, one person said that the Cramps looked as if the actual Frankenstein's monster and his bride teamed up with a gravedigger and an axe murderer to form a band. And they somehow looked fucking sexy as hell the whole time they did it.
2: Oh, man, that sounds like a perfect Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> we should pitch that.
3: Actually, we really should. Yeah, let's bring it back. Yeah, it's Frankenstein's band.
2: Yeah, there
3: you go. <laughs> yeah, the Frankensteiners. <laughs> I can do better than that. We'll work, yeah, on, we'll it.
2: work on it. We'll work <laughs> we'll on it. We'll on
3: it. But this whole package, you know, that the cramps were who they said they were like they were not posers in any way whatsoever like who they were on the album was who they were in their fucking apartment this whole package was somewhat misunderstood by irs records irs marketed the cramps as a quote cult new wave band which the cramps fucking hated because they they thought that cult made them sound elitist You know, because cult implies that you have to know some sort of secret to get in. The Cramps were like, no, our music is for everybody. Because we want people to hear these covers so they can hear the music that we love. And furthermore, IRS got their bio wrong by saying that the album had been recorded in Nashville, not Memphis. And to most people, this probably isn't an important distinction. But to music nerds like Lux and Ivy... There was a huge gulf between the Nashville sound and the Memphis sound. And in this, they were absolutely correct, especially in the 70s. Back then, Nashville was the epitome of elitism and gatekeeping when it came to the music business. Nashville was everything that was wrong with the music business. Because Nashville was where the blandest country artists of the time recorded the blandest country hits. You know, songs that are now... Largely forgotten. You had to know somebody to get into Nashville. That's why the whole outlaw country thing with, you know, Waylon and Willie started, is because they wouldn't, Nashville wouldn't let them in despite how fucking good their songs were. In other words, while the UK based IRS probably didn't know it, Nashville had a stink in America. But Memphis, that was a fucking rockabilly city. It was the home of Sun Records. It was the birth of rock and roll. And therefore, it was more rebellious and a hell of a lot more cool. But IRS is like, I don't get it, it's Tennessee. They're both, <laughs> <laughs> like they're both music towns. It. Like I don't get it. What are, you, what are you so mad about? And so the cramps sort of got turned off by IRS Records, and the relationship began to sour. But regardless, the cramps still had to tour, and they traveled to Europe in 1980 for a set of dates that would solidify the band's reputation of one of the most exciting live acts of the era
2: yeah I mean, they finally had a bunch of fans that were wanting to go see them <laughs> finally <laughs> yeah, they're people knew who they were yeah there it was that was amazing like uh England Scotland France Germany I mean uh, what more than one show, the crowd would get so crazy like in such a frenzy that they ended up spilling onto the stage and made them do an encore
0: Important. they forcing Force them, them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes and then they they had the fall open for them where Mark E. Smith he told Lux you don't you know you don't need all that theatrical kiss stuff that you're doing over there you know when you perform you don't need that you could lose that and Lux was like what theatrics <laughs> what I this is what performance is made for yes. oh my god. I, th- <laughs> god I hate making sense all the time <laughs> and that's the thing Lux would perform so hard he would End up with like cuts all over his body, which for some reason would turn green. (laughs) So <laughs> That's like,
3: called an infection. Yes.
2: <laughs> so he went to the hospital to get, like, antibiotics, and he's, like, sitting there waiting in the in the waiting room, and there's, like, a whole bunch of fans also in the waiting room with him because they also got busted up at the show. Yeah. So he's just like, oh, you too? Okay. Yeah. Is, is yours turning green? Because <laughs> mine is.
3: Yeah, I mean, cramp shows were kind of dangerous. Like, fights would br- I mean, people had such a visceral reaction. Like, not in the way they would have a visceral reaction to suicide. Like, it would just it would make people feel animal like it would bring them down to this level of like visceral passion that they it sometimes it would turn on each other like hell the show that uh Reverend Horton Heat saw in uh Dallas like he said that there was a gigantic fight in the parking lot afterwards <laughs> like it was just it just it just fucking happened the cramps brought something up in people but it wasn't like a fight where everyone is angry it's just a a fight and then at like People would have a fight and then afterwards they'd hug each other. Like, hey, fuck yeah, man, that was great. It was, a that was such fight. a good time.
2: Oh, let's do this again. Yeah. Meet it, you in the parking lot next week.
3: Yeah, it wasn't aggression like the Misfits had. It was something different altogether. It was passion and it came out in different ways. And Lux and Lux's performance encouraged that.
2: Yeah, but it wasn't just Lux. It was also Brian. Like, he would do cool, weird things. Like, he would go on stage uh, sitting in, a like, a yoga lotus position, you know, like, almost with your legs crossed. And he would run around on the stage on his knees <laughs> doing that. And then spin around on one knee and then jump in the audience. <laughs> He'd oh, frighten people.
3: Yeah, and never stop and playing. Like, he no. play the entire fucking time. That was the thing about the cramps. They never stopped. Like, Brian never stopped playing and Lux never stopped singing. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, it was all fun and games until Milan when they uh, opened for the police again and someone threw an orange at Lux's head, hit him in the forehead. Mm-hmm. So Lux just dived into the crowd. But the audience, uh, he doesn't realize there's thousands of them. Yeah. And one of you. <laughs> so, like, he had to claw his way back onto the stage. And then once he got on stage, he was just bleeding all over because people were, like, just pulling his hair and biting his shoulders. <laughs> and d- back to the hospital. <laughs> and uh, funny thing, that pissed off Andy Summers from the police because their amps were ruined by the fruit that people were throwing at them. (laughs) Like, how do you get pulp out of the speakers? I don't know.
1: Now the Cramps
3: were much more popular in the UK than they were in the US and as a result a couple of young English boys started a fan club called the Legion of the Cramped which was started by a guy named Lindsay Hutton and who else but fucking Morrissey
2: <laughs> you probably here's that old time fucking Morrissey <laughs> <laughs>
3: absolutely hear Lux's influence on Morrissey
2: that's about James Dean oh this charming (laughs) downtown country boy (laughs) never knew his (laughs) place okay we can't
3: do this we can't do this we'll do this later we'll do this later we'll we'll do it for the Smiths or a weekend thing yeah it's it's our Saturday afternoon band (laughs) but even though the Cramps were obviously doing great in Europe and the UK Brian Gregory who had done some of the most interesting and inventive guitar playing on the Cramps first album suddenly quit the band in the middle of a tour in the spring of
2: 1980. Yeah, well, what happened was that Lux and Brian had smoked opium the night before (laughs) and then they went to bed and the next day Brian was just gone. Just without any explanation. Uh, apparently he had allegedly taken off with his girlfriend and a van full of their equipment. Jesus. In the middle of the night, just like that. Like, and Lux was so pissed. I mean, they were all mad, but he called him a money-grubbing creep who wanted to get political in their music but couldn't read the back of a ketchup bottle. <laughs> I mean... Well, they,
3: they were worried at first because, you know, Brian Gregory, his... Fucking his hero was Brian Jones, who, you know, famously died at a very young age. And they were very worried about him. They're like, oh, fuck. Like, is he dead? And then when they found out he wasn't dead and just took off with all their equipment, they're like, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy forever.
2: I mean, rightly so. I mean, like, he did leave him on the lurch there. But according to his girlfriend, they didn't take any of the equipment with them. They just left on their own. And uh, uh, what he what she said was that she got fired from doing the light show because she was doing that while they were dating. And uh, he thought like, okay, that's the last straw because I've already been feeling detached from the group, not being taken seriously. And and I want to get more serious with my music like the cramps weren't cutting it. So he eventually started a band with his girlfriend called Beast and just it just moved on from there.
3: Yeah. And Beast and Beast didn't do anything because it just sounded like everybody who was doing goth rock at the time. You know, it it just wasn't... It it wasn't special. It wasn't the cramps. Yeah. And Brian Gregory... And another reason why people say that he he left is that Brian Gregory was really getting into, like, occult learnings like he was reading the necronomicon all the time and he wanted to focus more on that and that wasn't necessarily what the cramps were into and that's what IRS said when Brian Gregory suddenly oh, yeah. left like IRS released a statement saying that he had been fa- he had fallen into an occult cabal <laughs> and, and would not Whoops. be returning uh-oh <laughs> oops oh, i hate that when i fall into an uh, occult cabal ah, <laughs> ah. so after brian gregory left he was briefly replaced by a woman named Julian Hetlinger. Hechtlinger? Hechtlinger. Hechtlinger. Uh, and she took the fantastic name of Grindsnatch.
2: Oh, Julie Grindsnatch. <laughs> That's such a cool name. Julie
3: Grindsnatch is the, the best fucking name. And that was during her brief period with the cramps. And Grindsnatch, she only played 10 dates making her the first musician of dozens who would rotate in and out of the Cramps during their long tenure. And there are way too many of these types of members for us to cover them all individually. I think there were overall 22 members who were in the Cramps. Really, the most important of the second wave of Cramps members was the guy who replaced Brian Gregory for the next two albums. His name was Brian Tristan, and he'd long been a fan of the Cramps. In fact, his band, The Gun Club, had already written a tribute to Kramp's guitarist Poison Ivy Rorschach called For the Love of Ivy.
4: Like I never was from hell. My heart is broke so I'm going to hell. Bear me way down deep in hell. I'm still a young man. I wanna go to hell.
2: It's a really good song. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, like uh, it, it inspired a lot. The Jack White and with the white stripes is really good. It's a good song.
3: Yeah, it is.
2: Okay. So All right, but let's
3: but let's get into for the love of Ivy. Okay. Let's let's get into it.
2: All right. So they originally came up with the title for the love of Ivy from the Sydney Portier uh, romantic comedy movie. Mm-hmm. And then Brian wrote like these really perverse, scandalous lyrics using a book he had called 1001 Insults. <laughs> But they were huge fans of the cramps and they loved Ivy, of course. So it kind of like morphed into the love of Ivy and they figured it's like a tribute, but like in a loving way. But it's still very gross. Yeah. These lyrics were very, very gross.
3: Yeah. This is the original version of the song, not the version that we just heard.
2: No. Uh, But before they changed the lyrics, they heard that Lux had like this mean streak when it came to what people said about Ivy. Yeah. he was very protective over. Yes. And not to mention lyrics about Lux, like your face is cracked like a Liberty Bell. (laughs) So they're like, oh, God, oh, God, he's going to kill us. Uh, We've been playing this song at live shows. All over town. Yeah, which is fine because there was like only ten people in their audience every time they played. So, <laughs> so Jeffrey Pierce he changed the lyrics to give it a, like a more bluesy uh, like imagery. He said and like like took lines from other blues songs and molded it more into like a like a hunt for Ivy from the perspective of like some evil hunter like like that that movie Night of the Hunter when Robert Mitchum is like a preacher and he's he's out to murder children. <laughs> like he was thinking like something like
3: evil like that very evil you know it's written from the perspective of an evil person and that rewrite has a pretty fucking hard racial slur in it yes and perhaps it's time to address the willingness of late 70s early 80s punk artists to freely throw around some pretty heinous words in their songs gun club ain't the only one guilty of this See, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, you know, singer of the Gun Club, and Brian Tristan, they rewrote For the Love of Ivy as a story. As we said, it was a song from the perspective of a terrible person, a murderer. And other artists like Nick Cave, who Brian Tristan later ended up working with, they did this beautifully in songs like Stagger Lee.
4: I'm a bad motherfucker, don't you know? And I'll crawl over 50 good pushes just to get to one fat boy's asshole. Said Staggerly. Just then Billy Billy rolls in, he says, You must be a mad motherfucker called Staggerly. I'm Staggerly. Yeah, I'm Staggerly. Get down on your knees And suck my dick Because if you don't You're gonna be dead He said steadily. Oh well Billy Billy dropped And a slobbered on his head And steak filled him full of lead Oi
3: You know, it's a murder ballad, and, okay. and it's off the album Murder Ballads. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that makes
3: perfect sense. Yeah, and murder ballads have, like, a, a long tradition. You know, they're these songs that are written from the perspective of murderers. Uh, like and, uh,
2: Frankie Teardrop.
3: Yeah, Frankie Tear. exactly. Frankie Teardrop is technically a murder ballad. But, you know, Nick Cave, that song was from 1996, Back in the 70s, punks, unfortunately, sometimes got a little too edgy for their own good in the pursuit of making a point. With even the legendary Patti Smith being highly guilty of this on her album Easter.
2: Ah, (laughs) such a bad idea. We we all know
3: the song we're talking about. It's just
2: you believe your own hype, maybe you get to this point where you think, like, I can do this, I can break down barriers. Yes. And it's like, no, no, you can't. I'm sorry, you cannot. It's not your barrier to break down, Patty. No, it's not yours.
3: (laughs) No, I mean, this ain't necessarily a defense, but at the very least, I mean, these lyrics, they don't come from a place of hate. They're just really fucking misguided. And in some cases, like Jeffrey Pierce of the Gun Club, Jeffrey Pierce was an obnoxious motherfucker.
2: Yes, he was. I mean... (laughs) Highly
3: troubled, but highly fucking obnoxious.
2: Well, I mean, that was the kind of thing. Like, he would try to assimilate into different cultures. Like, go to Jamaica and then try to get into that. And Mm. then when he was a big fan of, of Blondie, he was like the president of the fan club. And then he bleached his hair like Debbie Harry. Like... He tried to take on the personalities of these things that interested him. Yeah. But it just doesn't work out well (laughs) when you use a word like
3: that. Yeah, yeah. It it,
2: never works out.
3: It never works out. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what Brian Tristan uh, would say about uh, Jeffrey Pierce. He would say, like, he was fucking obnoxious. He was awful. He was the worst. And you would be so sick of him. And you'd be ready to wring his fucking neck. And then he would do something brilliant. You know, and then you kind of forgave him a little bit. Uh, But Jeffrey Pierce does have a very what? He died at like twenty six or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, He
2: died very, very young. Lots of drugs. uh, Very messed up uh, individual kind of guy. And I mean, like the thing is, like he was talented in the things that in the when he wrote the music. But it's just, just you know, give the lyrics to someone else.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Just use a different word. Yeah. But the thing about the Gun Club is that the Cramps like their songs, too, paying particular attention to Brian Tristan's guitar plan. And after Brian Gregory left and Grind Snatch's time came to an end, the Cramps asked Brian Tristan to join.
2: Yay! Yay Brian Tristan! Brian Tristan! Sorry, I like him a lot. But he's he's great. great. Yeah, he was the guitarist in the Gun Club, you know, the band he formed with Jeffrey. And a mutual friend of theirs, Christian Hoffman from the Mumps, actually suggested to the Cramps, why not get Brian to replace brian <laughs> you, you see yeah. yeah all right so they they were like okay fine so they asked him and he said like let me think about it uh you know this is cool and all but i want to go back to school and you know i already have a band but then jeffrey went up to brian tristan is like are you crazy <laughs> do it do it's it now the, it's the fucking cramps go. i am dialing for you all right <laughs> now put the to your face and tell him yes. Yeah. So that's what he did. I mean he called up the cramps and he said alright cool uh, when can I audition and they're like no there is no audition he's like okay well what do I need to know and Ivy asked what are you willing to sacrifice for this band and Brian was like uh, what do you mean like, like quitting school quitting the band alright she's like no a finger <laughs> are you willing to sacrifice a finger for this band and he's like just one? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. And so they came up with his new name because he got a whole makeover. Of, of course. course, he got yeah. tattoos. He changed his hair. He got new clothes. And they're like thinking about it. They're like, let's see, uh, thing. Ooh, that's cool. Or or the kid, kid murder. No, I got it. <laughs> kid Congo Powers. After the Congo Santeria candles, when you light one, the Congo Powers will be revealed to you. And here you are.
3: <laughs> well, Brian fit in perfectly with the Cramps. You know, like the Cramps were outsiders. Uh, Kid Congo, he was gay. He was also an outsider. And especially being gay and like being Mexican-American and being gay in the night early nineteen 19- or early to mid-1970s. Like, that ain't easy. So he just fucking, he fit in the Cramps like a hand in a glove. So with Kid in the Band, the Cramps got right back into the studio. But after the terrible experience they'd had last time, the Cramps declined to work with Alex Chilton.
2: <laughs> and Alex is at the bar like, whatever.
3: Whatever, dude. Fuck, okay. I don't care. <laughs> and they instead produced their second album, Psychedelic Jungle, themselves. And it was the right fucking move.
4: When the sun goes down and the moon comes up <laughs> Show
3: Surfier.
2: Yeah, that's a cover from Ronnie Cook and the Gay Lads. <laughs> <laughs> that was the name they went with. That's the name they went with. Hell yeah! Well, half of the songs on Psychedelic Jungle were like obscure covers, kind of like that. Which is which is good because like the songs, like when you hear the original songs, they don't really sound a lot like the cr- the Cramps version of it. No, at not all. really. Yeah, because they felt like well. It's not because we can't write original songs. I mean, we can. It's just that we find a song that best expresses us, and even if someone else wrote it, who cares?
3: I mean, you can't tell the difference between a Cramps original and a Cramps cover, yeah. like, unless it's a really well-known song like "Surfin' Bird. You know, like, I thought until we got into this, I thought, uh, I can't hardly stand it, I thought that was a Cramps song. Yeah. I didn't know that was a Charlie Feather song. Like, I didn't know, yeah. I didn't know that was a, a fucking cover because it just, they just, it slides so well right next to Cramps originals. Yeah,
2: it's uh, what you call crampifying. Crampifying, hell yeah. Yeah. They recorded this in L.A. at AMN Studios. Uh, IRS was funding the whole thing, which means they got very little money. Yeah. But they still worked really hard. I mean, they took lots of speed and just played on the album, like, just crazy on speed. Like, King Congo said it was like they were ghosts <laughs> as they played. Like, he hardly remembers the sessions.
3: I know that feeling. I know the speed ghost feeling.
2: Jeez. Yeah. Really?
3: <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, uh, i I remember Speed Ghost like I remember being on Speedy stuff and feeling like a fucking Nazgul like (laughs) I'm feeling half human like I I remember that shit Uh, and remember like David Bowie does not remember recording Station to Station that's true because he did so much cocaine yes (laughs) this is not this is not a a singular experience in rock and roll recording history no (laughs) this album like it certainly it has a lot more of a garage rock feel because they're covering a lot of garage rock songs and it definitely has shade Of the Gun Club style, especially when you listen to the cramps cover of the classic garage track Primitive, originally done by the groupies in
4: 1966. What I done. Just can't see what you expect.
3: I mean, that was like putting up a fucking flag because the cramps were primitive. Yeah. Like that was their, I mean, that was the core of the cramps was just primitive fucking rock and roll, the stripping it down to its essentials.
2: Yeah. I feel like that whole album, you could just play it at 1 a.m. at any bar (laughs) and it
3: just fits. It'll fucking work. But besides the covers, which, you know, as you said, make up a full half of the album, the Cramps were still recording fantastic originals like Beautiful Gardens, which kind of sounds like it was inspired by their show at Napa State Mental Hospital.
0: Ooh.
2: Who doesn't want vampire lesbos coming after you? (laughs) Who doesn't want that? Yeah, exactly. Well, this song actually was completely improvised. Really? Yeah. I mean, Kid Congo, you hear that riff? Yeah. It's a really powerful riff. He He's just started playing it over and over and over again. And then Nick would play the beat. And then Lux would just let it all out, just completely improvising all his vocals. And about three minutes into the song, there's like a little tiny backwards vocal in it. And then, like when it fades out and comes back in, it's Lux saying, if you knew what I knew about this record company, this place would be a parking lot. <laughs> Ooh.
3: Ooh, What what does that mean? What does
2: that mean? I don't
3: know. I don't know either. But even though things were looking up, the Cramps, like all the bands we covered, they're about to go through the ringer. Band members would be set on fire. Other band members would lose eyeballs. And when you throw in a brief correspondence with John Wayne Gacy... Of course. (laughs) You got all the makings of the Cramps Part 3 coming next week.
2: Yes, exactly. We wanted to stretch it out just a tiny bit more because there's just so much more great cramps music to there's play
3: so much more great i mean they're they're one of those few bands that like kept making great music up through the 80s like they're so that they two or all of their fantastic all of their best music is in the 80s um but they're yeah well so we have and it's such a good story too and we'll talk about of course we'll talk we'll talk about, we'll talk about, about spongebob yeah i know
2: yes of course <laughs> kidding me (laughs) we're totally gonna do that of course 90210 oh yeah the crow all that shit everything all that
3: shit yeah 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 so thank y'all very much for listening thank you uh we hope y'all enjoyed it and if you want to hear the music that we played on this episode of course go to uh my spotify profile uh and uh, you can find all of the playlists uh for every episode of no dogs in space that we've done you can also just type in when you type in no dogs in space to the search bar they also come up there as well. You know, they're all labeled, too. Uh, so, yeah, go over there and uh, check out the playlist. Hell, this one, it has 24 songs on it. Wow. So, the, <laughs> the yeah. There's... Yeah,
2: we, we, we packed it with music.
3: Yeah, we time. packed it with music because it's the cramps. You got to pack it with music. Yes.
2: And uh we got t-shirts on sale I believe, right? Lastpodcastmerch.com.
3: Lastpodcastmerch.com uh, to if, buy your no dogs in space t-shirts. We got men's and women's.
2: Yeah, if you want to buy one that'd be great. My parents have two each. <laughs> I swear to god. It's very it's very sweet. It's yeah, very it's sweet very what they're sweet. doing, you know. Uh and uh oh, just a quick plug. Uh, professional Friends Podcast. My yes. side podcast that the thing I do cuz I need I need a, like a little moment without Marcus sometimes <laughs> cuz we're together all the time. So I need like a good half hour of just friend time. Yeah, And so check yeah, out that a, on
3: uh, everywhere you can find podcasts it's a fun friend time it's a fun hangout yeah you know if you're lo- if you're looking for some company yeah professional friends is your place
2: oh yes it- thank you and the new band of the week that we like to showcase every week at the very end
3: well since we spent so much time in memphis this episode we figure we go for a tennessee band out of murfreesboro this is flummox avant-garde art metal it's Fucking great. Cool. <laughs> it's it's really, really cool. Yeah, shit. it
2: is really cool. Oh, and don't forget if you're a band or a singer or whatever you do, if you play any instruments, uh, you can send a submission at no dogsinspace at gmail.com. If, yep. if you'd like to be featured on this.
3: It, please, please. We get so many fucking great bands, and we're we're still going through them, of course. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're still going through them. We love listening to what you guys are doing. Uh, so yeah, this is Flummox. The album is Intellectual Hooliganism, and the song is Tom Walker Blues. Thank you all very much for listening. Thank you for sending in your music, Flummox. We wish you the best, and uh, we'll talk to you all next week.
2: Goodbye. One, two, three, four. Five, six, six.
0: video call fails by now the mute button mishaps the cat cameos people not realizing the cameras on when their pants are off but none of this makes fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy bitsy baby duck how do i turn that off it's too late fred it's too late <coughs> when you realize it's better to do business in person it matters where you stay welcome to the hilton garden and fred the meeting room is right down the hall hilton for the stay